Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm going to be speaking with author Angel Louise Colon, and he is the author of a lot of different novellas, like the Fantine Park novella series, the Blackie Jaguar novella series. Um, he recently released Hell Chose Me, his debut through Down and Out Books, and he's also the editor of the new anthology, and I hope I pronounced this correctly. You can um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Pake Tulo Sepas. You nailed it. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, real quick, before I before I jump into my conversation here with Angel, for everyone who's listening, I have a note from Shane who was unable to make it tonight. Um, he just wanted me to say, hey, folks, I've asked Rich to pass this on to you in my absence. I really wanted to talk to Angel and to babble at all of you again, but Rich and I talked for nearly four hours straight last night, and I overtaxed my voice and my neck just a tad. I'm extremely cautious when it comes to my voice for multiple reasons, and I don't want to run the risk of doing further or more permanent damage to the pipes. I'm sorry, I, sorry to miss yet another episode, but you were in more than capable hands with Rich Duncan, and I'm certain you are once again in for one hell of a show. Put your seatbelts on, and as Rich and I are prone to saying, get your motherfucking popcorn ready. <laughs> so, everybody, I just want to introduce Angel again. Angel, how are you? I'm pretty fucking great today, man. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm real excited to get to uh, talk with you today for a lot of reasons, um, mainly that, you know, I wrote a little review of it a little while ago, uh, Hell Chose Me, which is still after I read it, which it's been a couple months since I first read it, but it's still pretty high up on my list of favorite books to read. And also to have another um, a crime writer on, we recently had Laird Barron on. And uh, one thing some people know, some people don't, is that Ink Heist is kind of like a we focus on horror, but also crime and kind of where they intersect. Yeah, you know, Laird's a badass. Uh, I, I've, I've had very few occasions to interact with him, but yeah, he, he does straddle that line very well. Yeah, so yeah, he that was a great guest to have on there. Um, I was It's weird because I was more familiar with him mainly through his crime stuff. I'm still relatively new to crime. I've you know, I've read a lot of it, but I'm not as well versed as maybe, you know, Shane is. But um, two, I was just curious. Um, When we had Sean on last night, I thought this was a perfect way to sum it up. For people who may not be familiar with you or your work, um, we would like to ask you to kind of give the, you know, new kid on the first day of school speech, just kind of introduce yourself and, uh, you know, your books. Oh, Christ. Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you said it. You know, my name is Angel Luis Cologne. Um, I am a crime writer. I, I, you know, I use that term loosely because crime is such a broad genre. Um, my, my, my work is uh, heavily influenced by pulp, um, but also uh, there's a literary slant to that, too. So I, I'm a fan of uh, I'm a fan of, of fooling you into thinking what you're reading is lowbrow. And, uh, you know, providing readers uh, the slow and dawning realization that the, maybe they're reading something a little deep. Um, hopefully, I, I, you know, I've yet to figure out if I'm actually succeeding in that, but that, that, that's the goal. Um, 
but uh, yeah, my, a lot of my writing is, uh, I've been more known for my short work, uh, but you mentioned before Hell Chose Me is my first full-length novel. Um, but I, I did uh, I did make a, a bit of a rep for myself on the short fiction side of things. Yeah, and um, that kind of leads into, you know, sort of my opener is, you know, like you said, you were known for your short fiction. And it's kind of weird in that I, I first became aware of you, and I can't remember if it was you or Down and Out, but um, – we had a request for hell chose me. So hell chose me was my first experience um, with your work, but I was just kind of curious, you know, how did you, you know, what made you want to become a writer, I guess, to like sit down and, you know, try and be a quote unquote professional writer. I, that's a terrible term, but you know, when, what, when did you first, you know, decide that you wanted to, you know, make a serious go at, you know, writing fiction and short stories? Well, you know, it's funny you you say in the the professional concept, right? The, the or I, I actually use writer more than author, and I always split that. There's two there's two times in my life I always wanted to do what I'm doing, um, but before I decided to be serious about it, I I fancied myself an author. You know, and, and it's it's not a slight against people who use that term for themselves, everybody. But for me, it was always something that it's very easy to say the word author and say, I want to be an author. Same with writer. But, you know, I always felt like author was this weird, like pretentious, nebulous thing. And um, up until my 20s, that was my that was my through line. And I, I didn't accomplish shit. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I I was one of, you know, like like every other 20 year old cocky, thought I was the shit, thought I had great ideas. And then nothing ever happened. So I gave up. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, so I'm 39 now. So back when I was about 32, uh, 33, um, I, we, we had had a uh, hurricane Sandy had hit us and it, it, it hit us pretty bad. And it was, a uh, it was a pretty trying time. Um, and after the fact, I, I hadn't realized, uh, I got, gotten a little nice case of PTSD. I was dealing with some shit and, um, you know, I, I ended up actually, uh, sort of reconnecting with a friend of mine uh from college um another writer um a, a cat by the name of rob hart and um you know we, we hadn't spoken in in jesus i don't know how many years but um we'd gone to college together and we, we reconnected and he had told me about a site he worked at called lit reactor and uh you know i'd seen he was he was getting his writing career going and i was kind of like oh you know it just kind of rekindled something and i, I checked out that website and uh you know, did some writing workshops, which is something I hadn't really done before. And I mean, it was, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend like the initial experience was great because, you know, people were like, this sucks. Um, <laughs> but it was something that I hadn't really done before in getting actual honest feedback from humans. And it didn't bring me down. It actually just made me say, well, I'm going to fix this then. And I think that was kind of the moment I decided I'm going to do this seriously. You know, I think it's and this is, again, different for everybody, but I think there is a point where you have to kind of swallow the shit and say, OK, if I'm going to be serious about this, I need to. The first thing I need to admit is I suck at it. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, writing is a craft, right? Like it's something that you have to refine and get better at and, and continue to to aim to get better at. You can't just like be complacent, sit on your fucking haunches and be like, oh, I've got a couple things published. I'm the fucking man. You're not. That's not how it works. So 
I think once I got to that point and I was like, okay, I suck. I no longer, I no longer think of myself as author. I think of myself as moron scribbling like a maniac. <laughs> um, once I got to that point and could understand that, I was like, all right, cool. Now I'm going to try to get a good review at this workshop. I'm going to try to get people's attention. And it was like, incremental. Like then it was like, okay, cool. People were liking what I was putting out. Now I'm going to, I'm going to muster the nut to actually submit this, submit these things to places. And, you know, deal with that. The next set of rejections, the next the next set of people telling you, nah, you suck. Um, and then, you know, continuously putting myself through that ringer. And I'm the kind of person that when people tell me no um, in, in my, yeah. you know, especially when it comes to my the things I want to do in my life, when people tell me no for no reason, I this, you know, I, I just get irrationally angry and I always use that anger to make me you know, I, I effectively at the end of the day, the goal is to raise my middle finger up to those people and be like, look what I did to assholes. Um, and that's the Bronx in me. That's just how we are. And, you know, that's what really got me going. That was when I was like, all right, cool. And once I got published and, you know, and I got my first award nom and people were like, hey, you're not a moron. That was kind of cool. And, you know, then you're like, all right, I think I'm going to continue this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I find it interesting, you know, kind of how you build off my question saying, you know, the distinction between writer and author and maybe how they're two separate things, because I, I feel like most writers, you know, that's something, you know, it is a craft and you can learn it, but I've always kind of looked at it and, you know, listening to interviews after interviews with, you know, all kinds of different writers, regardless of, you know, genres or backgrounds, is that it always seems like something that is born in you, like this desire to be a storyteller and to tell stories and write. And, um, you know, I kind of had a similar experience to you. You know, I haven't been published or anything, but my background is in journalism. I worked as a journalist for a short time. And uh, during that, you know, I did some creative nonfiction workshops as part of like my electives. Now, growing up as a kid, I always wrote stories, you know, superhero stories, you know, mainly, which is kind of odd considering now, you know, I'm more onto the horror side of things, but like I would write them down in these little notebooks and then rip them out and like staple them together almost, you know, like it was a book and put by Rich Duncan. So that ties into, you know, that part of where I feel like people who are writers, it's born into them. But like you said, with the workshop, I mainly did that stuff and nobody outside of, you know, my parents read it because I was, you know, in elementary school, you know, and I'm just like, hey, check out this story I wrote. It's like five pages. But then when I got to college, um, that was my first time. It was creative nonfiction. Um, I'd written reviews and stuff and I you know, it wasn't that I thought I was hot shit, but I'm like, I'm pretty good at this. So I was excited to take this elective. I'm like, yeah, let's, you know, let's show everyone what I got. And, you know, some people, it was just an elective. Other people, they were, you know, English majors. And the reality when I, you know, read my first assignment, which mortified me because I have a fear of public speaking when I had to like, you know, have this group of people read something I wrote and then critique it to my face. It was like you said, it was kind of just like a reality check. Like, oh, yeah, I'm, like yeah. I'm like, wow. And like, I hear these other stories and I'm like, 
well, man, this thing that I wrote, this is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it, it, it's something, you know, I, I've told people, I've told new writers, I'm like, that that's your fucking, like, that's your flashpoint, man. Because, you, you know, there's nobody in the universe in that situation that's not going to get that flush of heat. I don't care yeah. who you are. You're going to get it. It just is what it is. And that's cool. But really, the, the, the point to me is, what what is your reaction? Yeah, right? exactly. Like that that's a huge piece because you got there's plenty of, of, of folks out there they they get that feedback and they lash out, you know, and they shit the bed, and you know and and when I when I see that I'm always like eh, I don't think this is for you man, you know it just is you're getting in your feelings, you're convinced of your brilliance, you're not quite there yet, you know, um. I think one of the most important things in the world for me is being unconvinced of that brilliance. You know, it's not to say I'm not sitting around, you know, being, you know, deprecating myself or trying to be humble. I know I have talent, but I think it's really boiling down to I I might know I have talent, but I'm not going to sit here and believe that everybody else would believe I have talent. Does that make sense? You know, like I, I I can't project that on everybody else. Yeah, that make that makes perfect sense. And like you said, it's how you handle the feedback. And I feel like the way you react to that, you know, anybody really like that's going to tell if, you know, like you said, if writing is for you, like I recently just tried my hand at writing fiction again. But this time, especially after undergoing those workshops, I was under no illusion that you know, this was a great story and I had someone read it and they really enjoyed it, but they gave like a long list of feedback. Now for me, I was like, well, great. Yeah. These are some very valid points and this is going to help make this thing as good as I thought it could be in my head. Like I knew it wasn't there, but I took it in stride. But like you said, I've seen plenty of people where they're like, well, this story's great. And even though the person will give constructive feedback back to them and be like hey i liked your story they see that long list of like markups or comments and then they're like well these people don't know what the hell they're talking about like my story's perfect yeah no and that's a terrible attitude and i mean and this is the thing you know it's every note's not you know gospel man like Uh there there are definitely notes you're gonna get where i mean i've gotten notes before where people are like oh i don't think people say this and i'm like no people say this you're not from the Bronx. you don't get it you know yeah. And that's cool. But I think it's again, it's, it's one of the worst things you can do is getting all into your feelings about your writing. Um, you know, you, you have to accept that there are going to be people that don't get it, that there are going to be people, be people that don't like it. You know, all you can do is try to put it together to, to the best of your ability, um, make it clean, make it make, make it make it as clean as humanly possible. Uh, and, you know, just try not to be a bore. Yeah, yeah. That Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, I know you said when you how you had those two stages where originally, you know, you did have that like, oh, you know, I'm hot shit. And then, you know, you kind of grew over time. And I knew you had written the series of novellas first. And if you want, you could kind of talk about the process of like landing that first thing. But I always think it's interesting with a debut novel because like you said you had experience with short fiction and novellas and I was just curious when you decided to sit down and write Hell Chose Me 
Um, you had had other stuff published with down and out books, but I yeah. was just wondering, you know, what was it like trying to write that first novel, which, you know, a lot of people look at that as like their benchmark. Like personally, I think, you know, short stories and novellas, they're all very valid forms, but like everybody is always like, oh, the first novel, like this is the big one. Like, what was that like for you when you sat down to write that? Well, well Hell Chose Me was actually, I mean, trying to think, I think that might have been my, the actual, the third novel I wrote. Um, the other two never really do, you know, kind of more and more, uh, you know, trunk novels, but it, I mean that, that I, I've always been the type of person that when, when I put something together, you kind of got to get a feel for the legs of it. So, you know, coming from a short fiction background and being a, you know, I'm a fan of word economy. Um, you know, though, when I talk, people wouldn't know it, but you know, when I, when I write, I'm, I'm very into, you know, minimal dialogue tagging, you know, I'm not a huge, you know, uh, detail guy unless you have to. Um, I'm, I'm very into, into paring things down as much as humanly possible. And, um, sometimes that could be to your detriment, but in novel writing, but, you know, so that led me to really, you know, like embrace and enjoy short fiction because you can really put together a lot of great stuff when you like when you're a person like me who obsesses about you know the challenge of building large stories and packaging them in smaller you know frames um but my novellas when when those happen i the two novella series of blackie jaguar and fontaine um so blackie jaguar was more just uh something that came off literally a picture i saw and you know it's what it's my process is usually i like to write an elevator pitch and then from there i try to write a synopsis or outline and that's where i figure out the legs of the story and a character like blackie jaguar you know for anybody who's read it and for anybody who hasn't i mean he's a cartoon character he's a, an xra pro v who is a fucking maniac the guy runs around blowing shit up you know he's id um and you know you kind of realize stories like that i mean you got you look at things like Jack Reacher and and no disrespect to Lee Child, the guy's got something figured out. But you know, those kinds of like hardcore stories, when you stretch them out into a novel, they always feel like filler, or at least to me. Yeah. Um, and characters like that, the tough guy who's never gonna, you know, really screw up, who's always gonna come out on top. I always felt comfortable with those kinds of stories being condensed like comics. Right. So, yeah. you know, that kind of led me to the novella form for that character. I was like, Oh, you know what? I, and it's an exhausting character to write to begin with. I could never imagine writing 75,000 words for Blackie Jaguar. I probably want to fucking kill myself. Um, cause he's a tough, you know, usually when I'm done with him, I just have to like take weeks off. Um, so, you know, I, I was like, all right, we'll do that. And then once after, after that, I, I, Fontaine came out of something else I was trying to put together and again, my elevator pitches. I mean, the original, the, the her first novella, No Happy Endings, the, the elevator pitch for that was Death by Bukaki. You know, again, <laughs> lowbrow, you know, and I always joke, but, you know, I always try to go with lowbrow and then try to find the emotional core from there. Um, and if anybody's read those, I mean, those stories are deeply about family. They're deeply about uh, handling your legacy and trying to figure out who the hell you are without without without. Uh, Without a guiding star, it's gone. So what do you do? Um, even though the, the your circumstances are immensely lowbrow, but what do you do in that situation? How do you how do you kind of survive it? Um, and once I've you know going through all those things, I, I wrote a, I wrote a little elevator pitch one day. You know, hitman kills people to keep somebody alive. It was just like a little thing. 
And I got back to it and I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I want to do, you know, I'd want to do a Larry Block pastiche. I wanted to do, you know, something um, old school, tough guy, hitman. And uh, I, I went back to that idea and I was like, well, OK, who's he keeping alive? He's keeping a family member alive. Why is he keeping, you know, and I kind of went through all that. And once I figured out the legs of the story, I was like, well, shit, you know, not for nothing. This can go long. You know, and it wasn't like a it wasn't like a huge revelation. It was just like, okay, you know what? Just based on what I'm putting together here, I I can actually do something out of this. I can actually play with this. Um, And again, you know, wanting to do this pastiche of things I love, but also trying to inject an emotional core that you don't normally see. So the story is your standard hitman running around, blowing things up, shooting guys in the head, John Wick style story. Um, but it's also the story of a person with immense mental issues and an incredibly toxic family. Yeah. And when I first read this book, um, you know, like I said, that those, it really spoke to me cause it's, you know, the exact type of book that I normally read and I'm kind of jumping around on, you know, the talking points that I had, but I find it interesting that you said about the early novella series where, you know, they were kind of cartoon characters and stuff like that. But then at its core, it was like a family story, you know, and that's kind of what I wrote about Hell Chose Me is that, you know, yeah, you have all this great, crazy action stuff going on. But like you said, at its core, it's about family and, you know, Brian and his brother, Liam, And, you know, there's, you know, their uncle Sean and the mom and just the way they're depicted. And, you know, I really like that. And I think I wrote in my review, you know, they're very complex characters, you know, Um, and Brian, like you said, he's a hitman. And at first, like the novel grabs you right away because like that first sentence, really, it opens up with him cracking skulls in the bar, you know, but then, you know, over time. And there's other stories that kind of have that arc, but I felt yours was unique is that, you know, he starts off where it's like, okay, yeah, this guy, he's just a badass, like a ruthless killer. And over time, he kind of, you know, kind of goes in reverse, like, you know, a lot of action stories or crime stories, it might be, you know, the good guy who slowly goes bad, whereas this one, he starts off, you know, pretty bad. And then over time, you know, he becomes, you understand why he is the way that he is. Yeah. And I, and I really wanted to play with that idea. Like what, what is, what is that, what is that trope when you, when you actually flip it, right? When you take, you know, you, you, uh, and spoilers, you know, when you fridge a character, right? When you fridge Liam, most of these movies, most books who do that, you know, when you have that moment, usually you're end of act one, right? Oh no, the, 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 that, that, impetus for the revenge happens and that's when things amp up and i said yeah, yeah i can still amp up but from a character standpoint what do we what do we do with this is it, you know is it more about you know i didn't want to do the, the typical well he's going to get revenge but it's going to be that justified vengeance i thought that was dumb um because it's been it's been done a million times and I, i'm not sure if i could do it better than everybody else has because everybody's done it so i said well okay well then what what is the, what's going to be his goal i mean he's going to want to live obviously people are after him but he's also going to want to get some kind of justice for his brother's death 
So how do we how do we navigate that? And how does he do it in a way that maybe begins to redeem him, but not in the way we're used to? Right. You know, going back yeah. to John Wick, because it's the best, you know, it's the most current touch point I could bring. But, you know, it's amazing what you can do with a character who's called the Baba Yaga. Everybody's afraid of him when you kill his puppy. Right. Yeah. Immediately the good guy, which is pretty amazing. Right. Like that's a pretty brilliant little narrative trick that you just kill the puppy and immediately everything that this guy might have done in the past, nobody cares about anymore. Like kill everybody <laughs> for this puppy, dude. But, you know, but at the same time, I mean, as much as I love John Wick what's the character arc i mean there really isn't much of a character arc whatsoever um and i wanted to i wanted to go against that and i wanted to say well what, what how do we how do we start a guy's path not towards like a born again kind of deal or like a guy who never kill again but more like how do we get this guy to begin to understand what he is yeah yeah exactly and I felt that that was, you know, really well done. And, you know, the other thing that I like, too, is, you know, earlier how you said, you know, you don't like to go overboard with description. I feel like all of my favorite crime and noir novels, you know, they have like those short, you know, punchy type sentences. And there's a lot of that in here. And I think I wrote, I can't remember the exact quote, but when I reviewed it, you know, I was like, you know, it's lean and mean, like yeah. it's very, very vivid and visceral without, you know, being overly, you know, descriptive. And it, it goes back to a lot of, the, you know, a lot of the writers that I do love, you know, Elroy, Elmore, Leonard, and the guys, though, they're, they're I, I will not compare myself to them because they're fucking poets. But, um, you know, I, I, I look at it more like the kind of writing I like, I write, but. I, I do enjoy being sparse because I do think, especially for crime, you're writing things that are fairly r like relatable. You know, most people have experienced violence. You, you know, most people have been punched. Most people have punched. Um, you know, not everybody shot somebody. That's fine. But, you know, I look at it like I need to trust readers to to be able to like build that up for themselves. Um, and I, I, I'm a student of uh, Craig Clevenger, who I think is a phenomenal one of the, you know one of the most undersung writers uh, of, of the modern era uh he wrote um two phenomenal books uh the contortionist handbook and um christ what's the other uh, as much as i love his writing I'm, for, I'm blanking on the other book it was a movie made called desiree about it but um his writing is very 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 sparse i mean i, I don't think either book is more than 250 pages uh but it's it really leaves a lot of the filler to you because what he's aiming for is just to give you the kineticism and the emotion. You know, the meat, the meat, that the, the meat in regards to the visuals and the smell, all that crap, that's up to you, man. You know, um, he wants he wants to kind of like envelope you uh, in the other things. And I, I always feel like, at least for me, I resonate with that. And I, I, I love the idea of trying to, you know, kind of attack your your lizard brain and your soul at the same time. I love that idea. Yeah, and that that's a definitely a great way of putting it and I you know, I feel like it comes across very well. And you know, the other thing that I like and it sort of goes into that sparseness and like how you said, you know, the way stuff smells or whatever, that's on you, but a lot of these things, especially like with the settings and stuff like that, it's very it's, you know, very concise, 
but I kind of like that you get that feel of, you know, what that place is like and, you know, the cat and by the people that are in there, like a lot of the setting descriptions, you know, there's a little bit here and there about the city and stuff, but a lot of it is also inferred from, you know, some of those characters that Brian comes across. Oh, yeah. oh I mean, no city is, I, I think, uh, you know, whenever you talk about New York, especially because New York is the setting for every fucking novel for the most part, unless you're, you know, Elroy, who wrote about L.A. and, you know, Chandler, too. But um, but even their books, you, I always think it's funny that people would think that your setting is defined by, you know, me telling you about what the corner of 14th and 5th looks like. I mean, that's bullshit. You know, nobody cares. Mm. Nobody in New York cares. You know, I, I could not tell you what's on that intersection um, at, at a random thought, but I could tell you about the people in that neighborhood, you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, I think New Yorkers and, and L.A. people do that. There, There's this it's the character of the place, you know, so if I'm going to write about, you know, a part of Yonkers, that Yonkers Bronx border that comes up a lot in Hell Chose Me, uh, which was my stomping grounds as a teenager. I'm going to tell you more about, you know, the demographic. I'm going to tell you about the general mood, you know, because I think that speaks to the character of the neighborhood. You know, in New York, it's all about how the people are acting. In the Bronx, you know, folks, you know, it depends on where you're at. But, you know, in the Bronx, most folks are fairly quiet. They keep their heads down. Um, you know, they respect each other. But there's there's personal boundary things in the Bronx. When you're downtown, it's a little different because you're, you know, you're surrounded by tourists. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to kind of find that because there, there's a, you know, the people of a neighborhood are its soul, you know, and, uh, you know, hell chose me. It's always funny because I tell people in there, they're always very surprised that, you know, a lot of hell chose me is, is like pulled from my life. So, you know, outside of the murders, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, there's an entire sequence at the cozy corner diner, uh, which was where I ate, uh, probably, you know, three to four times a week, uh, as a teenager, um, you know, there's uh, the pig story is about 97 percent true. So, you know, there's it's just to me, you know, when you're when you're doing setting, I think you got, you know, and that's why I do New York, because I know New York as well as I do you know, growing up there. But even still, if I don't, you know, if anybody's read Blackie Jaguar against the Ku Klux Cult, I, I wrote that book that takes place in Tennessee. Um, but at the same time, it, it's, you know, it's less about me telling you the specifics about a town in Tennessee when I can delve into, you know, the characteristics of the people I know from there and kind of play with that and kind of, I can deliver, I can deliver that similar feeling and, you know, kind of fool you into, into thinking like, yeah, it's pretty authentic, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. you know, if I'm running, if I'm running the grift, right. But it, it's, it's still, I think down the character, like to me that, that, that's where you need to go and that can help you really enhance setting immensely you know beyond any description i don't have to tell you about a cd bar everybody's been in a fucking cd bar you know but what i can really do if i'm going to amplify that seediness i can tell you about that one guy in the corner that's doing something a little fucking different that just like kind of you know takes that seediness and just brings it over the edge so now you're feeling gross you know like that yeah. now, now you got that impression like oh, okay this is the kind of place like when i walk in i feel like i made a mistake you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, that, you know, instantaneous regret. And then that, you know, and then you, you double back and you're like, well, shit, I already walked in. I might as well have a beer. And you're inco- uncomfortable for that entire beer. You know, that that's kind of the thing I like to focus on more than just, oh, you know, it smells. That's dumb. <laughs> but, you know, every we, we all know bar smell. What are you going to do? But, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
if you walk into a bar, you're the only guy in there, and the bartender looks like he's just been crying, and there's some dude in the corner who looks like he shat his pants. He made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, and I I feel like you know that's that's a very a very good point, and I everyone I think listening that you know can probably relate to that, and um, the one thing too is that you know you said you wrote this because you know you grew up there and you know i was just wondering you know and you said it's kind of a lot about your life and a lot of these places you were there you know and i also noticed you know i never lived in the city but i lived close enough um i grew up about 40 minutes outside of philadelphia so i kind of saw this happen there um not so much with new york but i know it pops up a lot uh, when Brian's, you know, talking about like the gentrification oh, and, yeah. and, you know, how much things have changed from how he remembered it. And, you know, I was always curious because like I said, I always lived in the suburbs, you know, I would go into the city, but I never lived in the city. And I was just curious, you know, if you could kind of expound on that, you know, like why maybe Brian reacts to the gentrification that way. Like, I think I have a pretty good idea, but maybe for people who aren't used to living in the city. Well, I think, you know, most people, when they hear the word gentrification, they, they you know, the first thing they think of is just, oh, white people showed up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's part of it. Um, but I think it's more about classism. You know, obviously, the way our country is built, white folk have more money. But I think you got to pair back and look at classism. You got to look at it as you have many, 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 many neighborhoods in New York City proper in all five boroughs filled them. You know, I, I can't I, it, for me, it's giving probably higher rate, a higher ranking to say lower middle class. I mean, there are people who live just just above the poverty line. Um, and I mean, coming from the Bronx, where I'm from. And, you know, I can I can spout statistics, but, you know, most people don't know this about the Bronx. But the Bronx is the most um, Latinx uh, town in the country. It is over 80 percent Latinx Hispanic Uh, has been since, I think, the 1960s. Um, And it it is it is immensely multicultural. So, I I mean, I've got the privilege of having grown up around a ton of different people, you know, people, you know, on top of my own family life. I have a very I have a fucking rainbow coalition for a family. My brother's West Indian Cuban. Uh, My 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 stepsister's Korean. My father married a Korean woman. Um, So I I, if you saw a family portrait, you'd be like, what the fuck is going on? But, you know, it's like it looks like a a model United Nations meeting. Um, But. At the same time where I grew up in the Bronx, it's it was similar. I grew up around a lot of Korean dudes. I grew up around a lot of Chinese folk. I, I grew up around a, a lot of Irish. Like, it was just always this mix, but predominantly Latinx. Um, so it, the Bronx has this weird distinction of being immensely uh, working class. And actually, fun statistic, I'll throw another one out. 67% of the people who live in the Bronx work in the city as uh food servers housekeepers all that stuff pure working class um so you're coming from a weird area uh the bronx has probably lasted the longest compared to the other boroughs for against gentrification it's happening but it you know we're putting up a good fight but anyway back to gentrification so what's happening with gentrification is what you know there's nothing wrong with people moving neighborhoods but what ends up happening is 
it's colonization. It's it's colonization by another name. You've got a, another class coming in. They 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 stake their claim. They sit back. They survey what they're at, and they say, "I don't like this." So they, you know, either by virtue of their money or you know by virtue of a government that will do anything, falling over, you know, head over heels to cater to them, begin to literally change the shape of the neighborhood. And that shape always tends to be pricing out the people who are from that neighborhood. You know, this is what drives Starbucks into neighborhoods, things like that. You know, they put small businesses out of business. They they put, you know, natives of the area into, you know, difficult situations because now places that they used to afford are gone. Um, you know, you, you literally changed the way of life for everybody. And at the same time in New York, New York's a funny place. Uh, there was always a habit of people moving north once they got priced out. You know, um, so speaking of, you know, from my Puerto Rican background, Puerto Ricans in the 30s and 40s, when they came in, when they came to New York, they often settled in um, the village area, Battery Park, parts of Brooklyn closer to the bridge because a lot of Puerto Ricans worked in the city. Uh, my grandfather himself was a printer. Um so you had a high population there, but as the Irish and Polish came in, the Puerto Ricans got sent up, and that's what led to Spanish Harlem. All these things you keep get, you keep going north, but there comes a point where you can no longer go north, because New York, once the Bronx ends, you get Yonkers, you get um, these other neighborhoods. You go in the Westchester, it gets a little ritzy. So now where do you go? And gentrification puts you in that position. You know, it 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 unhomes you. It you know completely devastates you economically. And it does it at the, you know, for the privilege of those who already have the privilege to live anywhere they want. And what tends to happen after the fact, just like colonization, is these folks do show up, but they don't make this place their home. They stay there for maybe 10 years. They have kids and then they go to the ritzy areas, which is right now what's happening in Brooklyn. Everybody I work with that's, you know, my age, 38, 39, 40, who was living in Brooklyn for the last 15 years, they're having kids, they're raising their families. You know where they're going? Up the Hudson. So now they're going up to the rich areas and they're leaving behind all these places. Now you got a bunch of apartments that can't get rented out because the apartments are priced to hell. So what do you do? Now there's going to be a complete depression. And it's it's just this horrible robberus, but it was unnecessary. You know, at the end of the day, like none of it is necessary. And all it does is further damage areas because now you're going to have empty businesses, empty lots of places that were chains that you know, these these landlords and the landowners won't take any of the prices that probably would make more sense. So you end up with just pure poverty. It's it's disastrous. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I, I didn't have quite a personal experience with that, but I have seen it, you know, um, happen. And it is terrible because, like you said, there's nowhere else for, you know, people to go. And also it changes, you know, besides or I should say, in addition to the residents, like you said, all of those, you know, institutions and stuff that were there, whether it be restaurants or whatever, you know, they go away. And then what made those places special now oh, yeah. kind of makes it like everywhere else, like even, you know, even where I live, I live out in the rural areas, but, you know, you always hear about like, these places that have been around for years and years and the next thing you know it's bulldozed for like you said a starbucks or a mcdonald's yeah. or 
and it's it's yeah it's just terrible no it's fucking awful and you know what ends up happening is it's it's these very temporary like i said you know you got kids coming out of college and they want to live somewhere that's you know on the edge you know and um you know but they're not plan. that's not they're not making it their home yeah but they you know but they come in and they demand immediate change i think there was something on twitter a couple of months ago that was a perfect example of it I forget what neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, this person was on Reddit. They went to the I, Am I the Asshole subreddit where you oh, tell yeah. a story like I did this, Am I the Asshole? And the person was like, I moved to this great apartment. And uh, literally the Saturday of the week I moved, there was a block party. And it was so loud and people were smoking. And I went out and I complained. And it's like, OK, wait, you just moved there. <laughs> there was a block party, meaning this is a tight knit community. Right. Like. For yeah. any community to have a block party means people like each other, which, I mean, fuck, in New York, that's rare. So you're going to sit there and get mad at the fact that you are in a tight-knit community of probably, you didn't mention it, but it's more than likely a lot of brown people, Um, and you're upset, like, and you yeah. demanded immediate change. You called the cops on, like, holy shit, you know? Yeah. And that 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 right there. And it that's, you know, and I think that's what it is, is people, you know, we use the word gentrification. But at the end of the day, I really and I know people would probably be furious to hear and I make people mad all the time. But <laughs> I, I, I look at it more as colonization. I mean, that's basically what it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I would definitely agree with you there. And, you know, that story, it's like, you know, and maybe this is part of the problem, you know, just in general with people it's like okay you just moved in there and they're having a block party why would you not just go down there and try and get to know your new neighbors exactly right like (laughs) you know it's one of those things like how bizarre is that if i if i moved into a neighborhood and there's a fucking cookout one can i get food for free that's the that's the first thing i'm worried about like yo (laughs) like if i if i just bring like a bottle of something am i in for burgers you guys are amazing uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like you have to feel out where you're living. If if you didn't know that this community was this tight knit, then I mean, that's your privilege showing you're the type of person that believes that wherever you go needs to be by your standard. And that, you know, that that's something that plagues New York and it plagues everywhere else. You know, it, it's this bizarre privilege that a lot of younger people have that, you know, they you, you can't have your cake and eat it, too, man. You can't explore life and live independently but have things catered to you the entire time. That's not how life is. And, um, you know, unfortunately, though, for some people, it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, too, I kind of wanted to circle back on, um, uh, like, how you said another thing that you said came from your life, like the pig story. Like, I thought that was a great, you know, narrative thing because, you know, it has – the novel has a very easy to follow linear structure, but I like that every so often, you know, like you had the pig story. I believe that was the first one. You kind of jump through time a little bit, almost to show these different versions of Brian and you kind of see how he got to where he was, you know, in the beginning, the middle and the end and the main narrative. And I was just wondering, you know, was that always something you planned to kind of like use these like personal stories? You know, I'm not I know the pig one is probably the most personal to you. But, you know, even for him, like to kind of use these interludes almost. Was that always something you had planned for this novel? Yeah, um, 
I, you know, for me, it's, I'm trying to, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't contradict myself. I, I'm not, I'm never really in the, you know, it's the Darth Vader thing. I, I don't necessarily want to find out the full story of the villain, you know? Yeah. But with a character like Brian, who's clearly mentally, uh, he's sick, you know, I wanted to kind of touch on the key points of trauma in his life and sort of provide the idea, you know, know, we were just talking about the idea that the book is more about, you know, kind of the reverse trope of the man becoming a hero, right? So this is more about the villain becoming a man. But I wanted to also provide the reader a view of the boy becoming a killer. And kind of giving you the idea that one, there was always something off about the kid, you know, um, and using that idea, like, you know, whenever you hear about anything like that, it's like, oh, I always knew something was wrong with that guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to give you, give insight into, you know, wh- what is it that makes him off? And, and I didn't want to play with the idea of like, oh, it was abuse or it was any of these things. I, I, I keyed in really, because at the end of the day, when you think about murder, when you think about crime, I think people tend to forget. And I think this is because people love to, con- you know, misconstrue crime and mystery. And the mystery genre loves to be very reliant on convoluted reasoning. And that's fine. You know, that's part of the fun of solving a mystery is, you know, why did the killer do what they did? And the convoluted reasoning is part of the fun of it. But in my mind for crime, you know, especially being realistic, you know, most murders are crimes of passion. Most murders are mistakes made in anger. And that anger has to be roaring. Like, you know, for a person to, to... to make that decision because it is a decision you make whether or not you're in the right mind you've made a decision you have to have something just horrible in the core of you and i wanted to convey that brian always kind of had that and nobody ever did anything to stop it from growing so you know when you finally get to the chapter about nuri in 1999 uh, which is based on a true story um you know, I, I really wanted to bring you to a place with the character to show you, you know, this guy who is a fucking war deserter. He is already mentally deranged. Everybody calls him mutters and when he's in Ireland because he talks to himself because he sees the people, you know, that you don't know if he's seeing these ghosts for real. Um, and I wanted to show you just exactly what this guy was capable of. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that you left off at that point um, because I don't I know you write crime and maybe, you know, you also because I think I vaguely remembered because I follow you on Twitter. I think you had hinted at maybe writing, you know, something that was a little horror based. And one of the things that we like to ask writers who, you know, kind of bring those two together, like we did with Laird Barron is, you know, like when he sees people, you know, you don't know if it's real or not, but it's almost kind of very horror-esque, especially, you know, like the way that they are around him. And, you know, sometimes it's very visceral with like their appearance and, you know, what he may have done to them. But I was just curious, you know, if you were into horror and if so, you know, with this kind of thing, it kind of was like a horror element with crime. And we always feel like they make such perfect like complementary styles and i was just curious what do you think makes them work so well together 
Well, it's, it's, you know, I'm a huge horror guy. I mean, that was where I cut my teeth reading. Um, I probably should not have been reading as early as I did. But I mean, when I was 13, 14 years old, I was a big Barker and, and, and Jack Ketchum guy. Uh, especially I should not have been reading Ketchum at that point. Um, <laughs> but um, no, there there's, I mean, Jack is, you know, Dallas is probably the, the best uh, example I can give Ketchum's work, Girl Next Door. Girl Next Door is a crime novel. You know, plain and simple. There's nothing supernatural in that book, but it's also horror. It, it is visceral. It's brutal. It's terrifying. And it's because, I mean, crime evokes those similar emotions in readers and in witnesses. You know, when we see something horrible happen to people, we have the exact same reactions we have as we do to something supernatural. You know, and I, I think when you can kind of key into that and understand i mean it, it, those, those emotions are very similar and it, it's just it feels like it should be always the case right like you yeah. know for, at least for me i mean you know for as much violence as i write i never enjoy it you know I, it's it's not i don't think it needs to be enjoyable and it's always you know it should evoke some level of like palpable dread because violence is awful and uh you know especially gory violence and i you know i wanted to play with that and like you mentioned the ghosts in the story they kind of they they're, they're like broken tapes and um you know that that's a that's a mix of trying to really drudge up imagery you know very similarly i mean I, I cribbed so much from barker for that um but also you know playing with the idea is this in his head is this real you know and and when you when you do do something like that, um, it's what's fun about it is you find, you know, as I was editing the novel, because initially the ghosts kind of all had their own voices and had new new dialogue in the novel. They don't um, in the finished novel. They, they keep repeating things that they had already said. Um, and, they're, you know, the wounds that killed them keep appearing. Uh, and I, I ended up finding that that was a much more satisfying way of kind of, you know, making readers question whether or not this is real, but also, you know, sort of conjuring that sense of dread. You know, if I, you know, maintain the original, you know, other drafts of the novel where the ghosts kind of had their own personalities, it ended up becoming a little more comedic because my voice always veers into that point either way. Um, so I, I, it was kind of cool. And it was an interesting challenge too, to like find ways to actually take some of the words out of these characters' mouths that are more or less just begging for their lives and kind of try to find a way to apply them to the situation that the character's in to kind of then find comedy, you know, maybe even fi try to find a way to make that kind of like be smart ass in a, in a weird way. If you look at it at a certain, you know, at a certain angle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, like I said, that was, that was a really, that was to me kind of what made them so, scary basically is you know that they just kept repeating themselves like that i thought that was a really a really cool idea yeah i, I thought you know and it works too because if this is a guy who's kind of hounded and you know you never quite nail down that this is guilt but if it is you know it, it for me it made sense that it would you know he he it would sort of be that short-term memory thing and it would be those kind of like, you know, what, what would haunt you is the last thing these people, you know, la even if it was frivolous, it, the last things these people said would get to you. Yeah. And um, two, I was prior to our interview, um, I was reading some of your blog posts 
And I know there was one where you had mentioned, you know, after you wrote Hell Chose Me, where you said that you it, you almost quit. And then, you know, you had had other stuff that you started working on. I was just curious, you know, what about that process made you consider that? Uh, well, Hell Chose Me, it was, you know, it, it was a mix of things. Um, Hell Chose Me landed me an agent. Uh, then that things didn't work out. Um, so it was stress from that. Hell Chose Me as well was and sort of started becoming um a bizarre therapy session of me dealing with my own mother issues and um i think by the end of that and real life come crashing in it was you know it kind of mentally exhausts you because you know people say you know writing can be therapy but sometimes it's not the kind of therapy you expect you know it, it can be uh Sometimes the breakthroughs you have are, are, are a little shocking. So, you know, a lot of the things in my writing sometimes when I realize how much they apply to me and it's me projecting things I didn't, you know, maybe something for my subconscious or maybe some things that maybe I'm in a little denial of. Um, I think Hell Chose Me was probably the heaviest for me because there were a lot of things in there that I, you know, hey, like I mentioned before, a lot of personal things in there. But just I think a lot of things that oddly enough I, I was putting out on paper um, a lot of honesty that I wasn't expecting and reading it back especially and kind of being like oh shit you know you sometimes you're writing you don't really realize what you're putting there until you're coming back to it um, that that was that took a, a bit of a hit and it, it was rough you know and um, I think that there was just a moment or two that I was like I don't, you know I, I I don't know if I want to go through that again yeah. You know, and it's not a guarantee that's going to happen with every book, but I think for that, it was just, it kind of spooked me a little. I, you know, I sat back, I was like, shit, you know, I know I always inject a little bit of something into everything I write, but, you know, I'm kind of worried if this is, you know, if this happens again, I, you know, it, it's, it takes a while to rock that kind of crap. And um, I wasn't sure I was ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense because I knew you said it had tied into your life and, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very heavy story, especially too. But, um, one thing, you know, if it's any consolation is I'm glad that you didn't, because like I said, this, this book, it, it's incredible. It's still is stuck with me. I think I read it, you know, like I said, months ago and, you know, I still think about it and I was like, you know, it was my introduction to your work. I still need to go back and read some of the earlier stuff, but I was like, man, I was like, this is damn good. Like, I, I can't wait to see what he comes up with next. <laughs> yeah. No, in the meantime, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to query an urban fantasy. That's probably the most political thing I've ever written. So, <laughs> so no, I, I ended up falling right back into the trap. Like, you know, I, I, I went to the final, you know, into the current draft and I looked at my wife and I said, oh, well, shit. I think I wrote something that I didn't expect to write at all again. I did it again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's literally a chapter in the book that I can't read without crying. And uh, and it's a fucking comedy. But again, this is, you know, I, I, I decided to go deep on some anti-colonial nonsense. And um, yeah, it's like I said, you know, it's, it's just I'm finding that. You know, not every book does it, not every story does it, but, you know, you, you got, I got to kind of learn to prepare myself for the times where you, you, you kind of inject things about yourself into your stories that sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. 
Yeah, and you know that's that's kind of a good segue um, before I before we jump over to talk about the anthology. Um, you said you kind of fell right back into it, but do you feel like even though that experience that you had with Hell Chose Me, like it was very rough for you? Do you feel like having gone through that, you know, now you said you had that one section that, you know, you cry when you read it. Did that previous experience kind of help prepare you for, you know, handling that when it came back up again? A little bit. I think, you know, it's at the end of the day, I you know, life is something that, you know, I'm learning. I'm still learning about life is that. We'll we'll never have everything figured out. We're gonna find something new about ourselves every day. You know, not everything's an epiphany though. You when you're tw- when you're in your twenties, everything's a fucking epiphany, but it isn't. Um, but I think at the end, it's just me slowly giving myself the the uh, permission to admit that I don't know as much about myself as I think I did, and yeah. you know, kind of working through that and sometimes it's good sometimes it's you know kind of rough but it, it, i don't think it's been bad i think actually you know, at the end of the day hell chose me mentally ended up preparing me for a lot of other things and um i think you know other projects have done the same thing you know the, the current one that i'm working on uh and it's it's all you know it's all i realize it's all pieces of me you know even you know not so much blackie jaguar that's just my id but you know i've mentioned to people before fontine is you know that's a character that's very much me questioning what is it about me that is linked to my family? You know, what, what am I carrying with me? Um, hell chose me is, is very much about toxic family, which I have, you know, um, other, my short stories, I've been written a ton of short stories about my fears as a father. Uh, one of which it's a book that, um, I believe, I mean, my funny, funny aside, my, my, most of my deals of down and out are handshake deals. So I don't know if the book's exa- exactly coming out until they tell me, yeah, here's the cover. Um, but, uh, you know, something that I'm working on now with them is a book called, uh, uh, brief history of my scars, uh, which is a Bronx story about, um, and people who know the short stories about Sean Clark. Uh, it's about this character that I, I, it's, um, I wrote a few years ago in a, a story called separation anxiety, which is a story about just my fears of being a father. Um, and you know, it just kind of leads into that. Like the current project is me trying to figure out my identity, you know, as a multi-ethnic Puerto Rican, um, who the fuck am I, you know? Uh, so you kind of dig into it. And like I said, you know, I mentioned before, you know, I, I love, you know, working lowbrow and then finding these things. So I kind of, I kind of walk myself into it. Um, but it's been good. I think I, you know, at the end of the day, not doing this. I mean, it's not to say I, I don't think I'd be thinking about it if I wasn't writing, but it's kind of cool because I think I feel like I, I've I can like navigate a couple of things a little with a little more maturity. If that makes sense. I don't know. You know, yeah, I could be wrong. Who the hell knows? But it feels <laughs> yeah. good right now. Yeah, no. Yeah, that that makes uh, perfect sense. And um, two, I was going to jump into I know you. uh edited a new anthology for down and out books called Pake Tulo Sepas. And I actually have a question from Shane um, that I think, I think leads nicely into talking about this anthology. Um, He, he just asked me to read a quote from, you know, the intro you wrote, which, you know, I read that and I immediately 
sent him a message on discord after i read your intro and i was like i think that may be you know one of the best you know introductions to a collection you know and a very powerful one that i think i've ever oh, thank read. you yeah and i was like you need to read it so he wanted to he asked me to read this quote where you said these words they are for puerto rico specifically those who still suffer because hurricane maria and the racist infrastructure that demands the island of my ancestors be nothing more than a vacation hotspot that gets a little messy from time to time <clears throat> that island will struggle and rebuild they'll be hit again whether by the storms or their hateful colonizers but still they will stand up and make good from bad new from oh i'm gonna butcher this word detritus and it will shine like the sun and so he wanted me to ask he said it's been two years since maria devastated the island of puerto rico and he says this with great sarcasm and the great hero donald trump went and <laughs> saved the world with his magical paper towels but when it comes to real assistance, in spite of the fact that most Puerto Ricans are also proud Americans, there has been little to nothing forthcoming from the mainland, and it feels pretty hopeless, not to mention despicable. Do you think that the stories in this collection shed light on that hopelessness, or is it just the opposite? And do they shed new light on the possibility of, you know, new from this chaos for a people who have been historically, repeatedly left to their own devices in spite of America's claim to sovereignty? Now, a quick aside, uh, Shane, he had read a couple of the stories, I think, but he didn't make it all the way through. But, you know, I think that's a pretty good opening into, you know, what made you want to come out with this collection. No, it's a great, phenomenal question, actually. Um... When I put it, when I first sat down and I was, you know, uh, coming back into the the entire decision to to fucking do this nonsense because I've never wanted to do an anthology, uh, I never wanted to edit it, um, I, I just didn't want to. Uh, but it came, you know, out of looking around at my scene. Um, and again, anybody who listens to this, no disrespect for Christ's sake, but you know, you, you know, I'm gonna caveat, you know, you get frustrated. Um, and you know, seeing a million anthologies out there, you know, I, I think fucking a Steely Dan anthology just fucking dropped. I'm like, all right, guys, really steal, <laughs> we're at Steely fucking Dan. Let's slow the fuck down. N again, I'm sure the stories are fucking great, but really what, what the fuck are we doing? What are we doing next? You know? Um, and you know, I sat back and I'm like, there's fucking anthologies for everything. And, um, fuck there, there, there's no anthologies for, for this kind of thing. And, and, and it'll lead into, you know, one of my, you know, one of the reasons why many people uh, don't like me in the crime community is, you know, I call out the fact that there are literally only 23 listed Latinx writers, according to Sisters in Crime's um, Frankie's List. Uh, and that's fucking pathetic. So there's not a lot of representation. Um, there's uh, there's token representation and there's a lot of people in power who are very happy to say they know one or two Latinx writers uh, and they'll pat them on the back and say, great job, buddy. And that, that's how this thing goes. And I, I realized, well, you know, this is part of the problem. But at the same time, this is why there's nothing going on. I looked at comics. Uh, there was a comic book that came out um, to raise money for Puerto Rico. I saw literary projects. I didn't see anything in my community. And, um, you know, it's called Spade a Spade on top of it. You know, I didn't see anything in my community who write stories where a lot of my people are framed as the villains. Um. So that was troubling, you know, and 
I also realized, well, shit, I'm not doing anything about it. Why am I fucking talking? So I got to change that. So I got to do something about it. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in the intro, uh, I didn't think I'd be the fucking person to do it because, I mean, shit, I'm, I'm not, you know, um, I'm, 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 I was born on an Air Force base in San Antonio. I was raised in the Bronx. I'm New Yorican, but I'm also half Irish. Um, I'm not from the island whatsoever. My Spanish is terrible. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy, you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, let's be real. There are plenty of guys in my community that, that act like they're that guy and they ain't doing shit. So I had to do something, but at the same time, you know, I didn't want to put together a collection of sad sack stories because, one of the biggest problems in any genre when you deal with marginalized stories is there's this bizarre demand um, for stories of grief, stories of suffering, uh, this, this demand of marginalized people to make themselves worthy of empathy. And it has to be through torture. You know, it's like when you see every other year when they release a 12 Years a Slave movie and there's nothing wrong with those movies. 12 Years a Slave was a great movie. But at the same time, is that the only representation that's worth anything? You know, a story that's going to guilt you and then you're going to feel bad and say, no, it was horrible that that happened. I'm a good person, you know, or is it better to have something like a get out, which approached similar topics in a very different way? Um, so I wanted to I, when I when I got when I sent my, my writers um, uh, the email about this, I said, I don't want stories about hurricanes. I don't want stories about Latinx people suffering. I want Latinx stories. I want loud stories. I want stories that are uncompromising. I want you to use Spanish whenever the fuck you want. I want you to write stories for us. And anybody else that reads it needs to, you know, they're going to have to, they're going to have to cater. They're going to have to, you know, bend a little to figure it out. Um, how you want to approach it is how you want to approach it. If you want to write humor, write humor. If you want to write something dark, sure. That's fine, too. But I, I really didn't want, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten stories that were all about, you know, oh, my house is gone. I didn't want that. You know, um, I feel like people should know we've we at this point we've got, you know, with climate change, everything happening every year we're, we see pictures of what what happens. We know what happens at this point. If you can't find it in your heart to feel bad for that, I don't know what to do for you, you know? Um, so I, I didn't, at this point I was like, yeah, that, that's something that's beating a dead horse. I want people to have to come to terms with the fact that Latinx people are human and that's it. And, and then without having to make you, you know, without having to, to beg you through a story that's all about misery. You know, one of my favorite stories in the collection is, uh, Richie Narvaez wrote, uh, a phone call and it's, I, I, fucking it's hysterical and bluntly yeah as a puerto rican it's much funnier than me than most people would find it um because when i read it i hear my uncle uh but that you know it was one of those things i said to myself people will have to read this and it will challenge them and that's such a good thing you know uh, you know, we cater to, we, we too often cater to people with the empathy story. People are used to that. So I, I think now there's a, you know, now's the time for marginalized writers to finally say, all right, cool. 
you, you got you're interested in us. Let me give you something on my terms and it's going to challenge the shit out of you. And I think, you know, if anybody's going to call themselves a reader, that should be something they should be up to the task for. I mean, I love being challenged as a reader. I love reading challenging books. And when I say challenging, it's not even just subject matter, just even things that I can't grok, man. I, I read uh, for the first time last year, 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. And I read it twice because I was like, I have no idea what the fuck I read the first time I did. <laughs> and, I, and I'm a Spanish speaker. And, I, you know, I'm a person that is is ancillary to this culture. And I was still like, what the fuck was this? And I love that. Um, so I wanted to, you know, evoke that as as best as as I as we could, you know, and and without being an interfering source, you know, as an editor, you know, for me it was I wanted their stories on their terms. I was going to be there to point out any major issues, you know, obviously copy editing and all that, but I was very much hands off on concept. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, I really wanted these stories to speak for themselves and I wanted them to be very distinct from each other. Yeah. And, you know, uh, please bear with me because you raised so many great points that I, <laughs> that I wanted to uh, respond to, but yeah, when I, when I read this anthology and I can't even remember if I approached you first or if it was the other way around, but I read about, you know, what the idea for the anthology was. And I was like, I knew I had to get my hands on it. Now I know with down and out, it's mainly like crime. And to you touch on this in your intro and the comments that you had said, but, you know, as I was reading it, you know, I was expecting, you know, like mainly crime, but then I was like, okay, well, he says there's going to be different stuff in here. But even as I read it, you know, that's kind of what challenged me is, you know, some of these stories are kind of outside of my comfort zone in terms of genre. Like I mainly read crime, horror, you know, and that's basically where I leave it for the most part. Oh, yeah. But, but you know, there's that's what makes this such a powerful anthology. You know, I tore through this thing like I started it one day and I was like, OK, yeah, maybe I'll read like a story a day. And the next thing you know, I'm just flying through them and you know you mentioned the one with the phone call that was another that was one that I really liked as well um my stepmom she's Puerto Rican so I kind and like through her side of the family you know I got to kind of see that and it was kind of cool to see it written that way as like a phone call um but too and you said you know not just like oh this is something bad that happened to me and you know playing on that whole theme that's one of the favorite stories that i had as well was it takes un pueblo by hector duarte jr and you know he starts off with talking about you know the the character's village and i'm not too familiar with his work so i don't know if maybe this had a personal element but you know it's about this village where you know all this terrible stuff happens but then at the end you know without spoiling too much about what happens it's more about them coming together oh yeah. yeah and i i loved that story but too how you were you know commenting earlier on how there's not as much representation for latinx writers one thing that i wanted to comment on and you know normally we don't we haven't really had the opportunity to say this but one thing that's important for us as far as coverage is, you know, bringing together a diverse group of authors and voices. 
and um, I'm going to kind of spoil it, but um, we recently decided to start publishing original fiction, and uh, we approached uh, Cena to write a story for us. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so, you know, one thing, so that is something that's important to us as well, and I don't know if maybe this has come up, but sometimes when anthologies like this come out, whether it be you know, an anthology that celebrates Latinx writers or, you know, the LBGTQ community, you always get some of those writers. And I'll just say it's for what it is. It's bullshit where you get these, you know, basically white writers who are like, well, this is bullshit. Why should we have an anthology that's just for Latinx writers or just for LGBTQ people? We should you know, and same thing with people who say we take blind submissions, they get pissed off about that. And they're like, yeah, well, we should be able to write for this too. You guys have more than enough places you can submit and that'll represent you or whatever. Why do you have to shit on stuff like that? It, it, that, that 90% of the time, I mean, that's just projection, right? It's, it's, you know, I always look at it like, I mean, and I, I've been fortunate. I mean, but it's, I don't know if it's a mix of my own reputation and my online presence. Nobody fucks with me. So, you know, it, it boils down to this. I mean, if you're not happy with it, then, you know, piss in your pants and cry, dude. It's just, yeah. you know, like you said, there's plenty of other places to go. Then That's the end of the day. There's hundreds of other places, literally hundreds of other places to go. Um, and it was one of the reasons why for this run, I, I, I did go, I went directly and solicited writers myself. Now I'm, 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 I'm planning a second volume and I'm going to stupidly open a submission window for that. So we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, but it, I mean, at the end of the day, I think, you know, a lot of those guys who, who do start barking about it, it it's because it terrifies them. Um, you know, the, the idea that the marginalized would gather, and decide to help each other, it makes them shit their pants. Um, you know, because it's it's that projection angle. You know what? You know they it's it's that instilled fear that well the shit we've been doing to people all these decades, centuries, clearly they're gonna do it back to us. Um, and you know every time I think about that, I'm like, really? That's what you're afraid of? Like it's yeah. taken thousands of fucking years for this infrastructure to come together, and now it's rotting. You think we can like, and I don't know if that's like a good or bad thing that like a lot of like angry white racists are under the belief that like brown people and marginalized people can within like a year put together exactly the same mechanism. I don't know if like, (laughs) is that like a really show of, is that like maybe a show of faith? Is that like some kind of like stealth admittance that maybe we're a little better? Like it took y'all like all these hundreds of years of colonizing to do this. And you're, you know, if God forbid a bunch of Latinx people get a, an anthology, we're going to put this together in a year. Thanks. I don't know. You know, I, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I guess, I don't know. It, it, it's always confusing to me, but you know, and I, at the end of the day too, you know, I'm, I'm a person of privilege uh, until you see my name. You don't know I'm Latinx. You know, I, I pass, I'm, I'm a white guy, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, it's a mix of things because I, I get to I get to see both sides of this mess. And, um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it never I've yet to know a guy who is talking frank, you know, spoken frankly with me about their weird racist worries that I haven't been able to go. Let me ask you something, dude. Why? 
and not have them just stare at me blankly. <laughs> you know, like, I've never had an answer. And, um, you know, that's, that's the way I approach all that. Like, whenever I see that whining, like, you know, you see a lot in the sci-fi community, they have the whole sick and sad puppy nonsense. Um, I just kind of shrug, and I'm like, listen, I mean, I, I, I can understand that you're afraid because maybe you're a mediocre human who has been sort of surfing along on your whiteness. Um, I know plenty of people like that. I know I did it at a point. Uh, and that's cool. You know, but, you know, it, you know, sometimes shit happens, man. And you, it's not brown people's fault if you get, you know, called out for being mediocre. You get found out. That's just kind of your fault, you know? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I We've been fortunate. I haven't seen anybody pissy about this outside of, like, one potential contributor that turned out to be a fucking huckster. But, um. He was a disaster and he got mad at me, but you know, it is what it is. Learn how to write. But it, it's, it's, this has so far been a, a pretty, uh, positive experience. And I think, you know, it's, it's been mostly down to the fact that I've, I've very, I, I've, I've tried very hard to focus on the, on, on the full community. You know, we're not a monolith and, that's what I've tried to kind of convey to people. You know, the Latinx isn't a race. Um, it's an ethnicity. So, you know, a lot of Americans are already confused about that. And they, they don't understand that, you know, we're kind of this bizarre microcosm. You know, we're all from different countries. Um, and even still, Puerto Rico, <laughs> my, Jesus Christ. My grandparents were racist, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just how it is. There were, you know, in Puerto Rico, there are towns of only black folk. Uh, I have an uncle who was ostracized from the family for marrying a girl from one of those towns. So, you know, it, it's, it's hard to explain those inner mechanics to people, but I think a lot of people need to learn that it's not always as simple as black and white. Um, and you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's not that anybody's elbowing you off your chair, man. It's just we're dragging a new table over. I mentioned it the other day on Twitter. It's, you know, I'm just bringing in a folding chair and some fucking lawn furniture, brother. I can find a spot. You know, um, this it, it, isn't about this isn't about shoving anybody outside, and it's not going to happen anytime soon. The system's too ingrained to, you know it's not built that way and anybody complaining is just a person who either hasn't seen success and pretends they have or they're just mediocre and terrified yeah yeah i i can't agree with you enough there especially like you said it's like bringing over another table like you know sometimes you see it with you know even like with what we do like covering books you know sometimes people take it about you know like a competition almost it's not about a competition it's about bringing more people together and you know it's it's kind of interesting how you said about you know like the latinx community it's not like a monolith you know i actually spoke about this last night with shane but um my background is uh native american you know i'm not full-blooded Native American, but my great-grandparents, they both grew up on the reservation. And it's almost like the same kind of idea in that, you know, 
Native American is seen as like an ethnicity, but you have so many different tribes and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, no. And it's it's something that uh even Latinx people have to learn. I mean, I again, like I mentioned before, I, I'm 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 a very special case and I recognize it. You know, I've been very fortunate to be exposed to a lot of different ethnicities and cultures, even within my family. You know, um, my my joke is on my mom's side, I'm I'm the lightest dude. On my pop's side, I'm the white, I'm the darkest. You know, um, and you know, I also uh, was actually talking about this, this to somebody the other day. My my, my great grandmother, uh, who actually lived until I was 20, I took care of her, um, so I already had the privilege of being around her. Um, but she was Taino. Uh, she was a Taino blood, which is the, the native tribe of Puerto Rico, which is an immensely small percentage of people can actually trace their lineage Taino. Um, but she was her her mother was Taino. Um, her father was actually Italian, uh, but she was she was a full blooded Taino Indian. And um, one of the saddest things about that, though, and this is that this is you know, going back to gentrification, colonization. She hated that. She despised it. Um, and she was a, a little brown Indian woman. And she fucking hated it. And she never told me that history. She only ever talked about her father's history. Uh, and like I said, this is the way these weird things work out. Uh, you know, I, I'll never forget her meeting my wife. My wife is Italian uh, and 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 uh, uh, East East European. She's she's light, you know, white, lily white, blonde hair, blue eyes. And she was so fucking excited <laughs> when she met my wife. And it was, you know, nice, but at the same time, you're sitting there like, this is fucked up. Um, and I think people need to learn those things about Latinx people, the politics of being Latinx, the idea that, you know, like I mentioned about Puerto Ricans specifically, this is an island that's been colonized from the start. We were one of the first landing points, you know, it was Hispaniola, uh, Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. Um, they... <laughs> My namesake, my last name, Cologne, is Columbus in English. Um, my namesake uh, forced Taino Indians to mine gold, and if they didn't bring gold back, they got the hands chopped off and tied around their necks. Uh, it is a dark history. And on top of it, anybody that lineage hates themselves. So it, it's a screwed up thing, you know? But at the same time, you know, this is why I didn't want this collection to be about this, because it's fucking miserable, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's that's the thing it's it, but you, you think about that history you think about how dark that history but puerto ricans and and this isn't exclusive to puerto ricans at all but at least in my experience puerto ricans are really fucking good at finding the bright side you know yeah um, and you gotta be like, like i said my fucking name is columbus what am i gonna do you know um you, you you find the bright side, you know, my, my, my joke is, well, you know, my, my name's Columbus, but at least I got a little swerve on it. It's a little fancy. I got a little accent there. I, we pretty, we prettied it up, you know, um, you know, you, you find a way to mentally sort yourself out and, and you, you build something new from it. And Puerto Ricans are a people who, you know, they deal with the American influence. They deal with the Spanish influence. They deal with all these different things that happened. Um, they pull these things together. Uh, they don't always land right, but, you know, they figure it out. And and again, you know, I can't speak for the island either because there's a whole other institution. You know, where I'm from, we call ourselves New Yorkans because these are, you know, these are all the folks that were New Yorkers, you know. Um, going back to Hell Chose Me, the entire story about uh, Sean's father, Marshall, um, 
who I mean, my, my grandfather, Sean's grandfather, Marshall, my grandfather's name was Marcelo. There's no, you know, like I said, a lot of, a lot of in there, a lot of me is in there and, you know, very similar background. My, my great, my grandfather was, uh, the cuckoo of the family. His father died at 19 in a fire, uh, when he was only six months old. Uh, his stepfather, you know, abused the living shit out of him and he, he left Puerto Rico at nine and moved up to New York with a quote unquote aunt. Um, and was working at the age of 11 uh, and continued to work until he died. Um, and, you know, he made he made he made his life what it was. And he he built something of himself out of it. And he was this bizarre dude who uh, only hung out with black guys. So he spoke a really strange patois uh, of this slightly accented huggy bear kind of thing. Um, wore uh, a different suit every day. He had about 70 suits in his closet. He was obsessed with clothes. Had, and he was just about the coolest motherfucker I ever knew. And, but it was entirely made out of, you know, what he, whatever he could find. And um, that's, I mean, oddly enough, as we talk about this, I, I guess, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, that was what this kind of anthology was. I wanted this anthology to be that. This, you know, thing on, on paper, you look at it and it doesn't quite fit together. But it does. And what it is is something you didn't expect. Yeah, and... Like I said, I I can't really say enough good things about this anthology. And for the people listening, if you haven't already pre-ordered it, uh, it's not out yet, right? No, it drops uh, 10 days on, uh, right, 10 days? What is it? It's the 19th. Yeah. So it actually drops on, I'm a liar, nine days on the 28th. So okay. October 28th. Yeah, so for anyone listening, if you haven't already pre-ordered this, definitely pre-order it. Like I said, the range of stories is incredible. And one thing that I thought was interesting as you were telling me that story a couple minutes ago is it reminded me a lot of uh, Cena's story, which I really, really loved. And another thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, I'm, I was familiar with some of the writers, but not all of them. So I always do this anyway, even if I am familiar with them. I was reading through you know, the biographies at the end. And I saw that uh, Christopher Novas, yes. this was his first published story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris is a good kid. Uh, I, I met Chris through a couple of people. And, and and you know, anybody listening who's newer to writing, this is the power of networking, folks. Um, I, I met Chris because of Nick Corpin, good friend of mine. Um, Chris is an MFA. Uh, he's starting his career and you know, I reached out to him. And I told him, listen, you know, um, I wouldn't have done this, but, you know, what do you think? You know, is this something you'd be interested in trying? But, you know, I have to let you know, you know, you're being held to a standard here. You know, this is one, uh, you know, this is how the sausage is made. This doesn't happen. You know, this never fucking happens. Um but, you know, I, you know, interacting with him and getting a feel for his mind, I thought, you know, you know, let's give it a shot. And I wanted to find a new writer. Um, and he's a he's a solid writer. He's got a, a shit ton of potential. Um, you know, he's one of those guys I, I wish wrote more at this point. You know, uh, another another of my contributors, I, I'll always call her out, uh, Carmen Jaramillo, uh, write more stories, goddammit. I love her writing. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it was I wanted the I wanted someone brand spanking new and I thought this was a good opportunity. And, you know, it was a little scary because you never know what you're going to get. You know, like I said, he's an MFA, so he's had training. Um, 
but you know that that's a whole other conversation too the merits of M- of an MFA uh but you know that still doesn't prepare you to you know to to actually come to bat um but I thought he did a, f- a pretty fantastic job you know and it was cool just cuz you know at the same time too it's it's a way of paying it forward you know I've been very fortunate I've had multiple writers who have um come to bat for me and who have helped me uh and I, I thought it was a good opportunity to do the same. Yeah. And to your point, you know, that was that's a cool story to kind of hear about how that came together, because I'll be honest. And, you know, I'm no I'm no great expert. Like, yeah, I review books, but what the hell do I know about, you know, the craft? But as I was reading it, like without that biography, I wouldn't have known that was his first published story. All right. No, he he killed it. I, I when I when I, when he sent me that when he sent me the story, I read it through and I went, OK, shit, I don't have a lot of notes, <laughs> yeah. um, which was a relief. But again, you know, he, he's got his MFA. He knows what he's doing. But at the same time, it's, you know, I always say, OK, great. You know that, you know, the uh, you know, it's it's like, you know, you know how to build a chair, man. But do you know how to do inlay? Do you know how to, you know, do you know how to really get things in there? And uh, no, nah, he he did a great job. Labaka was a lot of fun. Um and I, I thought, you know, he, he, he really he did a great job and I, I, I hope he I, I hope he continues. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I love that story. And, you know, I could I could really talk about any all of these stories, you know, all day. But there was two um, that I wanted to add in. Um, I've already talked about a couple, but um, the one that I really enjoyed, too, especially was um, the bones of rio rico by david bowles um mm-hmm. i love because i'm a big sucker especially for horror but like historical you know his, a, historical framework and i loved that story and you know seeing al capone pop up in it yeah you know that, that was just awesome and the other one and i don't know because this was another writer that was new to me is another story I liked. And I, I was hoping that maybe this was like a series of novels was the sundowner by Jessica Lane. Yeah. Wasn't that a fun, that one threw me off completely. <laughs> yeah. 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 It read, that, was, that was one of my favorite reads just cause at the end I was like, wait, what? Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that kind of goes into like that genre fusion that you know we really like at Inkeist you know I was reading it and I'm like okay and I thought you know I had the vibe of this story and then I was yeah. like wait what the hell yeah. just happened Went and I'm like off the rails <laughs> yeah and I was oh, no, like, I that was that was a, a, a great surprise and it was funny too reading that I was like what no this isn't real and actually I went and did a bunch of research <laughs> Because I, you know, like I said, we're not a monolith, and 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 Jessica's background is is I, I believe she's Peruvian. So I was like, wait, what? What is that? Not this is nonsense. And I like went to Google, like read for like 20, 30 minutes. I'm like, this is okay. This is fucking crazy. This is great. I'm thrilled. Uh, yeah, that was that was that was a, one of my favorite surprises, especially at the last two three pages. I was like, this is fucking ridiculous, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, like you know, and what was cool is that. You know, like I said, with the whole genre fusion thing and like I didn't know that was real either, but like because you never see it too. like it took a trope that, you know, is for horror. The horror community has been beaten to the ground almost as bad as, you know, zombies. But 
she managed to take, you know, something from her experience and bring it to a wider audience. And it, it brought like a breath of fresh air to that. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed that story. And I love the uh, there's one portion of that story where she talks about the guy's T-shirt, uh, the Jesus T-shirt that cracks yeah. me up every time I read it. Yeah, uh, it's great. I had a specific note to the other the, the copy editor. I was like, make sure you format this good because this fucking cracks me up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's those are the pieces that yeah you know, that that made this such an exciting thing to put together. Especially when I was first like you know when I sat down, I was like, All right, what is the order I'm gonna put this in? Um, you know, trying to find that 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 uh, that's the other part of editing that I learned is you're almost like conducting an orchestra and. Uh, trying to find a good spot for that story. So you like, okay, where do I put this to, you know, balance it all out? And, you know, do I put this after a downer of a story? Cause you know, you, you gotta, you know, read the audience a little bit. So, but that was definitely one of the ones I was like, all right, I got to put this after a serious story. Cause you can't just have this back to back with something funny. Yeah. And, you know, I find it kind of funny that you, that you phrase it that way, like conducting an orchestra. Um, our last, episode that that is out not recorded with uh daniel brahm i was talking to him you know about being an editor and i came up almost with the same analogy you know i've never put together an anthology but i've always been interested in the construct and you know from like interviews i always i phrased it kind of like you know putting together like a great mix cd or a playlist you know like finding that you know beat i guess Oh yeah, and it's it's I you know it's like like you said it's like a mixtape you know, and um, you know putting this together I was fortunate enough that you know I I could I was able to you know because again my 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 anthology of Puerto Rico only had three Puerto Rican writers but again I wanted I wanted a mix so you know having me uh, open I had Richie in the middle and I had Cena close it which I thought was perfect um, especially Cena's story I mean she she killed it and her last line when i read it i was like jesus christ this is the end of this anthology it's perfect um but you know it was you know, when i when i figured that i'm like all right cool these are these are these are our linchpins where do we put everybody um it was it was an interesting task cuz you you know you got to you know you, i know a lot of times i most anthologies in my experience they usually try to put like you know a big name writer first a big name writer last and then they balance it all out in the middle and i you know i didn't want to do that necessarily um but i wanted to find a cadence to it you know and um you always worry with these things i don't want to bury anybody's story you know because that can happen very easily too yeah yeah i thought like i said i thought you did a great job um like i said i tore through this anthology way faster than i thought and um i guess one last question for the anthology is I don't know how well you know all the writers. I'm assuming pretty well because you said it was kind of like an invite thing. Yeah. But please tell me that you have asked Jessica if she's going to write more stories about Margarita. Because like <laughs> I said, that scene with the t-shirt was hilarious. And I I fell in love with that character. I was like, uh, this character's so great. I hope, hope, hope she, you know, continues with her. I think I think she has something in mind. I can bug her, but I know initially she was she was actually hesitant to put the story out because I think she had a bigger plan for it. Um, but no, I I mean she should. Uh, 
yeah. you know, I always, I always look at it this way, like put the story out, then, you know, expand on it. I've done that myself, but, um, no, there, there's, you know, there, that's definitely one that I think sh- there's potential cause it's so different. Yeah. And it, and for me, I mean, if, if it's ripe for comedy and it is, oh yeah, let's oh, yeah. do it. Let's and gross comedy. I'm like, oh, let's do it. Yeah. I'm all about it. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree with you there. And um, real quick, there was something else I wanted to touch base with you on because it was something I honestly I and I'm kicking myself for not knowing this that I didn't know about you. And I can't wait to go back and explore the archives of it. But you actually host a podcast called The Bastard Title. I do, yeah, because I don't have I I have so much time in my life that I decide to <laughs> fucking host a podcast. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a I, it's a shameless ripoff of Mark Maron's WTF podcast. Um, it's super loose. Uh, my favorite part about it is surprising everybody when they're like, "Are we recording?" I'm like, "Oh, we've been recording for like 20 minutes." Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's conversations with writers, but the focus, you know, it's a little more diversity focused. I usually try to book more uh, more diverse field of writers, um, but I don't limit it. Uh, but it, it's it's one of those things that was more of a response in my mind because uh, you, you mentioned doing reviews and stuff. And that, for a little while, I did reviews um, with Byline and I did interviews and I stopped because I noticed people kept kissing my ass. Um, so I was like, I, I don't like that. Uh, so I, I started doing I actually for for a while. I was reviewing romance novels with no byline and people had no idea, which was really nice. Um, but uh, so I wanted to do something that could expose people to writers. But one of my least favorite things in the world are, uh, and this was something that I experienced when I did interviews, was you just get these canned answers, you know, and um, and I get it. You got to sell your book. You know, I understand. And, you, you know, you, and you, your publisher's like, oh, sell the book. We, you know, we, we, we're going to give you $200. We're not going to put any money into it, but it's on you. Um, and I just, you know, I don't know. I, I looked at, you mentioned before, like trying to have that same bar conversation. Yeah. I wanted to do that. But at the same time, I, I said to myself, you know, it's funny. You put me in a room, man. I could sell myself. You know, I, I'm really, you know, that's part of the Bronx in me. I come from a long line of fucking con artists, grifters. I'm really good at getting people to like me. Um. And I said to myself, you know, man, so many writers I know, if they just talked, man, people would fucking love these people. And I would buy, you know, they would buy their book. I bought my book after a conversation. I have 100% bought a person's book entirely based on the merit of a conversation that had nothing to do with their goddamn book. I would argue most of the writers I know, I've bought books from the ones that I, I personally have had fantastic conversations with that had nothing to do about their book. Um, because, you know, for me, it's boiled down to, well, I mean, if we can, if we can like spark, then I'm going to like your writing, even if it's about shit I don't read about, you know? Yeah. Um, and now like my TBR pile is full of stuff. I normally would not have thought I'd read, but because I've really, you know, got along with the person, I'm like, yeah, you got, we've got a similar mentality. I'm going to enjoy your voice. Um, and I have, uh, I mean, I think the best example, uh, recently, uh, Wendy Hurd. A uh, writer out of L.A. who writes uh, something, uh, you know, a little more closer to YA-ish suspense, um, a little more, you know, more things that I'm not I've never really been into. Been loving her stuff, man. Her uh, her books are great and I, I've, I've enjoyed the shit out of them. Um, great titles, too. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, 
it's been great. And I decided to start the podcast because I really wanted to shed light on personality more than just the PR garbage. And, it, you know, and on top of it, emulate those conversations because I love having those conversations because they inspire me. And I realized it was a really good opportunity to really try to get more marginalized writers on and try to get more folks from the Latinx community, more African-American writers, more LGBTQ plus writers um, that I never see get attention. Uh, So it was, you know, it's been great. I I think I'm at episode Christ. I think we just hit 80. Um, And, uh, you know, like I said, though, it's, it's, it's very low frills. I, you know, I, I try not, I, I never prepare. <laughs> I, just, you know, kudos, by the way, Rich, like this is, this is, you're, you're, you're immensely professional compared to me. Um, you know, I, I never prepare. I, I very rarely come in with any kind of like agenda. I probably should, but you know, it, I always find it's kind of interesting to kind of talk to people about nothing. And like I said, you know, I crib from Marin, it's just trying to pull something out of writers because writers are such introverts to begin with. Yeah. Um, but there, I always find when you finally get the pull personality out of writers, you get really cool things. Uh, so it, it, it's been fun. And, and like I said, I think the bonus is knowing that I'm one of the few podcasts in my genre that, that is really focusing on trying to pull in writers that deserve more exposure. Um, and, and, you know, really trying to pull in diverse writers and, and, you know, trying to get a light on people who aren't getting the, uh, the, the, the marketing they should. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, I'm kicking myself for not finding it sooner, but, um, I, I forget why, why I even like, cause I've been to your website, but I'm not sure what made me go there like specifically today maybe it was to like look at stuff for you know our conversation but i'd found it and then i'm like oh well let's check it out i didn't know we had a podcast and then i was sucked right in but it was a little bit before our conversation so i'm like shit i gotta put this on <laughs> but like i'm definitely gonna listen to it later but oh you didn't you didn't listen to all 76 episodes man <laughs> get to it not yet. I, I drive a lot for work though, so I'm gonna download a couple. But um, sweet, yeah, it's on, it's on Spotify too. You, it's all over. I finally got it on Spotify. It took forever. But, yeah, um, it's yeah. kind of funny because, um, and I won't keep you too much longer, but um, it's kind of funny. We started this kind of in the same vein, like how you said to just have these conversations, and we've loved doing it. But like, it was something we always wanted to do. But like you said, with the whole introvertedness, like Shane and I both are kind of like that. So we were always like, yeah, we'll start a podcast. But we kind of dragged our feet and we're oh, like, yeah. oh, we'll, no, we'll it's fucking terrifying. It <laughs> yeah. We'll plan it out. But, uh, you know, it was like we weren't quite ready to take that leap until uh, John F.D. Teff, he we've told this story like 500 times. So for any of our regular listeners, I'm sorry. But um, he wanted us to help do kind of like a behind the scenes thing of his uh, the fearing series, and we're like, yeah, yeah, well, de- we're definitely interested in that. Thinking it would kind of be like a guest post or you know something we just do through either messenger or email. And then he's like, oh, we can do audio, right? And we're like, oh fuck. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, sure, because we're huge fans, and you know that was how we got started, but. 
like you said, over time, you know, most of the writers we've had on are people we've been familiar with so far, but getting to know them, like you said, outside of just the books, it, it's been eye-opening and inspiring. Like you said, when we talked to Josh, you know, he's a very high energy guy and like, you can just feel his enthusiasm. And like, that's one of the things where I was like, yeah, you know, let's get back into, you know, writing, you know, and yeah. just thinking of all these ideas, but, and it's also funny, we're not very high tech either. Um, yeah, right yeah. Now I'm recording in a spare bedroom, but there's been times where I've had to record in the walk-in closet. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a long running joke with us, but. Yeah, no, it's, it's been good. And I, I've gotten to a point now where I, I'm very bold. I just go after people, um, you know, and, and sometimes it's a hit. Sometimes it's a miss. It is what it is. You know, um, you know, you, it's funny because like I tell people, like you look at the first couple episodes, it's like clearly all people I knew. Um, and I mean, now I think my last like I think yesterday I recorded an episode with someone I knew for the first time in like three months. Yeah. Uh, I mean, most of the time I'm talking to strangers and um, which I love. Uh, I'm a weirdo like that. So, you know, that's always a fun piece is just because I've had some conversations. I know I got one coming up um, with uh, Aya de Leon, um, who's a phenomenal poet. And I, I never met her in my life. You know, the, the podcast is literally our first conversation from Jump and um, just such a great mind. And I we had to cut it off shirt and I was like depressed. I was like, oh, I'm going to bother you again. We got to talk. We have so much more material um but it's been cool man i i i it's been i think for me selfishly has been great i love it yeah yeah it's, i'm the same way as you and you know i can't wait to listen to the episodes and you know before i let you go um i just wanted to ask one last question and then um also if there's anything you would like to add for the, any listeners is I know you had mentioned earlier that you already have another idea for like a second anthology. I didn't know if you were comfortable with sharing, you know, maybe what the idea or theme for that anthology was and uh, you know, what else are you currently working on? Oh yeah, no, um, actually, I'm actually, I was actually this weekend writing um, my uh, pitch email for the second piece, it's tentatively titled Familia. Um, this time, I think we're aiming our money efforts, our charity efforts to races. Uh, so for folks who don't know, races is a, te- a Texas based uh, institution who uh, collect uh, money to help legally represent uh, immigrants at the border. Uh, they also are instrumental in helping uh, families that have been separated by this demonic fucking administration. Um, so I thought that that was a pretty, pretty solid charity case. Um, uh, so we're working, I'm working through that. Uh, one of the things with Paquetulo Sepas, um, that I, I, and it's, it's the fault the one fault of the anthology that I own is there really isn't, um, as much Afro Latinx and queer Latinx representation as I could have uh, put into that. Um, so I, I think this one, I, I would like to sort of rectify that, um, this time, I'm going to try to have a, a submission period, um, hoping to see if I can get that sorted out for November. Um, you know, it's difficult because I'll be doing it all by myself again. So I, I don't want to open myself up to like 100 fucking things because I don't know if I can read them all. Um, 
but yeah, we're going to see what we can do with this. And, you know, I'll, you know, reach out to a few people who couldn't do the last one with some bigger names and see if they'll, they'll jump on this time. Um, you know, cause I, I, I emailed people. I probably had no right to email, but I did. Uh, and they answered. So, Hey, um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, this time though, a little more focused. Um, I do want to do something more about family. You know, that's the name of the, the thing. So, um, but that, you know, that's about it. The theme will be family, but for the writers, it would be pretty much up to their interpretation. And again, you know, go funny, go crazy, go dark, whatever you want to do, you know, just make distinctly Latinx about that, you know, cause family and Latinx households is, is very fluid. Um, you know, there, there's always powerful loyalty, whether that's blood bond or word bond. Uh, so I wanted to really tackle that. Uh, so we'll see, you know, um, down and out's more than happy to to be my publisher again for it. I've already kind of pitched it to them, so you know it's just a matter of putting it together. And those guys, Eric, Eric Campbell and Lance Wright, over there are are um, immense allies. I, I can never thank them more. I can never thank them more. Uh, they they've been absolutely instrumental in putting this together in a way that uh that was in my brain, and somehow they spat it out on paper. It was insane. Yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, am looking forward to it. Yeah, and uh, other things. I mean, I mentioned before, um, and we'll see maybe 2020, uh, Brief History of My Scars, which is uh, a period piece that takes place in the 80s and 90s in the Bronx um, about a, an Irish idiot who becomes a, a loan collector. Um, so it's, it's grim. <laughs> it was one of the notes I got, like, Jesus, this is grim. So, I mean, if folks who had hell chose me and thought that was grim, apparently this is more grim. Um, I'm not sure how, but apparently it is. Uh, and, um, so I'm working through that. I've got something, uh, I'm hoping to sell at this point, uh, called the lesser saints of Brooklyn, which is a comedy, um, which is, uh, I wrote that actually, you know, we were talking before about hell chose me and what it did to my brain. Uh, lesser saints of Brooklyn is a hate letter to hell chose me. Uh, <laughs> um, and it was, uh, kind of like the, the, the complete antithesis of that book. Um, but it's, it's one of my favorite books that I've written. So I'm hoping I can find a home for it. And, uh, you know, we were talking about horror, and I actually tried to write a horror novel, um, and it became more of an urban fantasy horror, uh, and that's the one we were talking about before that became also an anti-colonial novel, um, and that one's called His Better Demons, uh, and it's about the uh, last exorcist in New York, who's a complete Puerto, he's a Puerto Rican dude, complete mess, uh, his best friend is Ben Franklin, so we'll see, real good pitches, like very sellable guys, uh, you know. Like that, that that's what happens when you write things with with humor. It's super sellable. But. <laughs> hey, if if it's any consolation, I I'm looking forward to all three of those. And I think now that you've kind of said what it was about, particularly the last one, the other two were new to me, but I definitely am down for checking those out. But I think for the third one, um, like I knew you had said something similar, you know. Like, how sellable is this? And I was like, it should absolutely be fucking sellable because that <laughs> sounds great. And that, that, it's a struggle because, like I mentioned, I, I touched on before the concept of marginalized people being looked at to just present their struggle. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's where you you have issues. I um, One of the writers that's actually been on my podcast, Silvia Moreno-Garcia, uh, she's a Canadian-Mexican author. Um, who's written some phenomenal books. Uh, I mean, if you, if you like, uh, she wrote this book, it's horror, it's fantasy horror uh, called Certain Dark Things, which is one of my favorite books released in the past couple of years. It's an incredibly original take on vampires. Um, that was a lot of fun. 
Uh, but she had mentioned, you know, a, a little while ago how a lot of marginalized writers don't have the ability to they, they don't they don't have the, the privilege of writing beach reads. Um, because she had seen a, a like a beach read list and not a single writer on the list was marginalized. And, you know, it's like, well, that's, you know, that's one of the things like it's it's quote unquote not sellable because this is something that under any other banner uh, is sellable. But it isn't because is it understandable? Is it relatable? Can people oh, you know, is it is it uh, accessible? Right. And that's always a bit of a struggle. And, you know, it's not like I'm sitting here writing these crazy, super in-depth stories about things that only like uh puerto rican from arecibo would understand um but it's you know everybody has a different interpretation of what accessibility is so that's always difficult yeah and uh one quick thing is you know if you ever decide to edit an anthology like that for those particular types of stories you know nothing like a throwing myself out there and b killing myself with all the stuff that i always have to read but if you ever need like a slush reader i would love to read those stories i appreciate that man thank you yeah absolutely and uh once again angel i can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight i had a great time talking with you thank you for having me man i really appreciate it it was a fantastic conversation yeah thank you and uh is there anything else you'd like to say before we get out of here for any readers Oh, just got to got to got to throw out that uh, that sales pitch, man. Paquetulo sepas. Uh, I don't know when this is airing, but it drops uh, October 28th. So if it's after that, it's already out there. You can buy it. All proceeds are going to um, the Hispanic Federation's charity Unidos for Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, we mentioned before Maria hit two years ago, but Unidos is still going because it's a shit show over there and people still need help. Um, you know, even though the island's got all its energy, I mean, I think if people have been following on Twitter or the news, there's still a lot going on. Uh, unfortunately, there's been issues with a lot where a lot of that money went um, that was raised through other avenues, um, hopefully not through Unidos. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, the island still needs help. It's um, it's a difficult situation for the people out there uh but i think you know i think i think the writers uh and have put you know they made my life easy but i think that this collection is something that you know even beyond buying it for charity i i really do and i'm biased but i really do think this is a special case where it's an anthology it's a charity anthology uh may i add i paid my writers haha um I'm going to throw that out there so I can pat myself on the back because nobody else does that. But, um, you know, uh, I do think that for any reader out there who just wants something really different, you're, you know, you're going to get a double, you're going to get a double piece out of this. You're getting two things. You're getting the, the, the knowledge knowing you did something nice and you, you gave your money to something cool. Um, and you're going to get an actual good book, uh, which I think is rare. So hopefully, you know, I think folks get on it. Get on it. Hurry up. Pre-order. You can go to downandout.com. You can go to IndieBound. You can harass any local bookstores uh, to pick it up. Um, and, you know, we'll, uh, we got some events coming up in New York, so we'll, we'll be blasting those. Awesome. Yeah, sounds great. And uh, once again, Angel, thank you. And, you know, anytime you want to come back on the show, we'd love to have you. Oh, Rich, thank you so much, man. And my best to uh, Shane. Hopefully he isn't uh, leading again. <laughs> no, I'm going to check in with him. I think he's watching some movies. But uh, right. yeah, I'll let you get going and have a great night, Angel. You too, man. Take care. Bye.